Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Third Avenue Baptist Church. It's great to have you here with us. We are uh, super excited this morning to be able to celebrate baptism at the close of our service with three people. So we are just going to jump right into the sermon. Let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're, uh, we're going to be looking at most of three chapters this morning. So if you're uh, uh, using one of these red pew Bibles that you'll find somewhere around you, uh, and you're certainly welcome to, to use one of these like I am, you can find the passage today starting in chapter 5 on page 555 of those red pew Bibles. If you've got your own Bible, uh, you'll have to find Ecclesiastes on your own, but you can sort of open up your Bible to the middle. Uh, you'll probably land in Psalms, would be my guess, if you hit more or less the middle. Then you'll find Proverbs if you go to the right, and then you'll find Ecclesiastes uh, just beyond that. So uh, uh, we are going to be today in Ecclesiastes 5, 6, and 7, looking at most of those chapters. The book of Ecclesiastes, uh, as you know if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, is part of what's called Old Testament wisdom literature, which means that its aim is to teach us as believers in God, as those who are human beings living in God's world, the art of living well in the world that God has created. That's what wisdom literature is, is doing, among other things. There are things that wisdom does in various places, points forward to Christ, uh, teaches us about the history of Israel, lots of things that wisdom does. But what it's mostly concerned about and what Ecclesiastes in particular is concerned with is teaching us the art of living well in this world that God has created. The name Ecclesiastes is, is not, as I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, parallel to the word Proverbs. So it's not as if Proverbs is a book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is a book of, you know, collected Ecclesiastes from various people. That's not, that's not what it means. The, the word Ecclesiastes, or it's actually, if you pronounce it correctly, it's actually something like Ecclesiastes is, is what the word is. And it just means the teacher or the preacher. It's a noun. It's a singular noun. The preacher or the teacher. Because what we get here throughout the book are the thoughts of a teacher who was also a king in Israel, so a teacher king, who set out over the course of his life to find out how to live a good and pleasurable life in this world that God had created. The trouble is everything this teacher king tried, from pleasure to sex to money to parties to productivity, all the things that he tried to bring fulfillment and goodness into his life turned out badly for him and just ended up underscoring to him just how much life is really a vapor, a mist. It's, it's here one minute and gone the next, he says. And so no matter what kind of legacy we try to build for ourselves, the reality is that death is going to come for us all one day. And on the day after your death, the sun is going to rise in the east and set in the west, and the tides are going to rise and fall on the oceans. And eventually, as that great thinker Conan O'Brien said, all our graves are eventually going to go unattended. So if that's the case, I mean, if it is the case that death is going to come for us all and the world is just going to keep on clicking after we're gone, then the question has got to be, is it even possible to live well in these short years that God has given us. Well, well the preacher, after he, after he hammers into our minds the fleetingness of this life, the, what he calls vanity of this life, he says, yes, it is. Even though death is going to come, even though the world is going to keep on with its rhythms, even though ultimately this life isn't going to give you the kind of legacy that you so often try to torture out of it, there is a way to live a good life. There is a way to live a life in this world that is good and pleasurable, and the way you do it is exactly by recognizing that these are, in fact, short years that God has given you. And once you grasp that, once you see it, you're able to live life in the way that it's meant to be lived. Two weeks ago in chapters 1 and 2, what we saw from the preacher is that the first way to, 
to live well in this life is, is to recognize, just sort of look it full in the face, recognize and embrace the fact that this life is not going to be able to provide you with any ultimate lasting meaning or satisfaction. It was not designed by God to do that. That's not what it was created for. It simply doesn't have the capacity to give you that kind of ultimate legacy, ultimate meaning, ultimate satisfaction. It's too short. It's, it's too thin. It was never meant to do that in the first place. And once you accept that and understand it and embrace that, Ironically, you can actually begin to appreciate life for what it is, a gift from God. That's what we learned in chapters 1 and 2. Last week, we looked at chapters 3 and 4, where the the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, began laying out for us, sort of one after another, a handful of truths that he says, if we'll grasp them, will help us live a good life in these short years that God has, has given us. So he told us, you should live in light of the providence of God. In other words, you should recognize that it's God who's sovereign over all the rhythms and back and forths and ups and downs and experiences of your life. You're not sovereign over those things. He said, second, that we should live in the light of the judgment of God. Recognize that there's a day appointed when God is going to set everything right that has been wrong with the world. And he says we should take great hope and comfort in that fact. He says that we should live for others, not just for ourselves. And ask the question, what what kind of tragedy would it be if, if you had everything in the world materially but nobody to share it with? You could just sit in the dark and eat your fine food all alone. He said at the end there in those first few verses of chapter 5, you should listen to the voice of God. Because it's it's, it's not finally what you say that is of such great importance. It's not finally what, what sort of castle you can build for yourself in terms of your legacy. What you can say to the world, what matters is what God says to you as someone who is here one day and gone the next well, today we're going to be looking at most of chapters 5 through 7 where the, the preacher, the, the author of Ecclesiastes, he's just continuing that line of argument. He's laid out those four pieces of advice. Here's how you live well in the world that God has created. And he continues to do that today when he gives us three more. So let's read the text this morning and then we'll talk about what he says. I'm going to pick it up in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 beginning in verse 8. The teacher writes there, if, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase also who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. 
A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, and yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Well, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, where, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man. More than ten rulers are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. 
One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, like so much of Ecclesiastes, I realize that this may seem like a long and somewhat tedious passage, and maybe you can, you can sort of you know, work yourself up and say, I'm, I'm going I'm to hold on to the thread of this thing, I'm going to follow the argument, and you make it about maybe half a chapter before you say, I don't exactly know what this guy is saying, and by the end of it, you've sort of thrown up your hands and, and given up, if you're like me the first time I read it. It's long, it's tedious, it's difficult. It's got these ins and outs, backs and forths that we've talked about for the last couple of weeks that, that kind of make up this book of Ecclesiastes. But I, I, I think this, these three chapters actually break down really nicely just into three more points that the preacher wants to make about how to live well in these short, vapory years of life. So let me give you what they are. I've already, we, we talked about last week some of the others, the providence of God, the judgment of God, loving others and and listening to the voice of God. Here are three others, three other pieces of advice the preacher gives about living well in the world. First of all, live in the joy of God, not the joy of things. That's what he talks about for the whole of chapter 5, verse 8, all the way down through chapter 6. So through 6, 12. 5, 8 through 6, 12. Live in the joy of God, not the joy of things. Number two, he says, live in the shadow of the grave not in the glare of the party. That's what he talks about in chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. And in the last bit from 7, uh, verse 7 through 29, chapter 7, verse 7 through verse 29, he says, live in reliance on God, not in reliance on wisdom. So those three things. Live in the joy of God, not in the joy of things. Number two, live in the shadow of the grave, not in the glare of the party. And number three, Live in reliance on God, not in reliance on wisdom. So let's step through that and see what wisdom we can gain from this preacher king who wrote Ecclesiastes. Point number one, he says, live in the joy of God, not in the joy of things. If you look over chapter 5, starting in verse 8 and all the way down through chapter 6, what you're going to see is that those two chapters, or most of two chapters anyway, are completely taken up with the topic of money. Now, as you read through it, as we did a few minutes ago, it may start out seeming like sort of a just scattershot mess, a grab bag of random thoughts here and there, all kind of tangentially related to to money. But I think these two chapters are actually a pretty highly structured bit of writing that's meant first to teach us about the real nature of money and possessions and, and then to turn our eyes toward a better way of living. So I think the way it's structured, if you, if you look at it roughly and kind of, kind of detail it and, and outline it, I think the way it's structured is, is kind of a rough sort of mountain shape, right? Where the author uses points to step up to what becomes his main point in the center, and then he steps down the other side with kind of mirror images or sort of shadows of the points he hit on the front. Now, you and I as English speakers, and especially as 21st century Americans, we don't tend to write like that. That's not the way our style is, and we don't read things that are structured like that. The way our writing works is that we start at what we think is sort of the least important thing and we work our way up until at the very end of the article or the piece or whatever it is that we're, we're reading or writing, the, the, the big crescendo comes at the very end. That's the conclusion, right? And there's really nothing that comes after that. The Hebrews and Greeks often didn't write like that, though. The way they would do it is in this kind of mountaintop shape where you step up with your points, you put, the, you put the main point at the center, at the top of the mountain, and then you sort of spend a lot of time stepping down the other side. And it has the, it has the effect 
of like a diamond setting your main point in the setting of all the other points that you've put around it. Well, I think that's what's going on here in these two chapters. And with that whole structure, I think what the author wants to do at each step, as he's making his way up the mountain and then down the backside, he wants to convince you as you're reading that money and possessions are not all they're cracked up to be. As he goes up and then down again, he makes four points about it, and I think each of those four points is worth looking square in the face at before we even look at the main point that sits at the top of the mountain. So four points that he makes here, and, and I'm going to show you where they're found, and you can, you can follow along. The very first thing he says as, as verse 8 opens on chapter 5 is that money can be taken from you. One of the reasons, one of the four big reasons why money is not all it's cracked up to be, why possessions are not everything the world says they are, is that money can always just be taken from you. So that's why he starts in verses 8 and 9 there, talking about a a corrupt government. It's actually a surprising thing that he does there in verse 8. You see it? He starts out by saying, if you see in a province, and then he uses these these huge, awful words. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, and this is where in any other prophet of the Old Testament, you you would get some scathing denunciation from God against the oppressors. And, and, And to you and I, who are the people of God, some rousing call to rally, demonstrate, overthrow, stand against injustice. That's not what he does, though. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor, the violation of justice and righteousness, and then you see what he says there? Don't, don't be amazed at the matter. <laughs> don't, don't be amazed at it. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. This has been the way of the world since the very beginning when humans started organizing themselves into societies and governments in the first place. And then keep reading and look what, he, look what he says next. This whole thing happens, he says, because the oppressing official is actually being overseen by another official. And that official is being overseen by another official. He's he's pointing out that in human societies and in human governments, there are whole hierarchies of oppression that actually go all the way up. You look at verse 9. Verse 9 might be translated correctly in your ESV Bible. And and if so, it's a kind of sigh. Verse 9 is saying, look, in the the midst of all of this, all we can hope for is is that we have a king who wants cultivated fields. And if we have a king who just wants the fields to be cultivated, that'll be a good thing. That's one way it can be translated. Another way it could be translated, though, is is something more like this. The gain from the land, even the gain from the cultivated land, is for all. In other words, it's for this whole hierarchy. And then it ends with even the king profits from cultivated fields. If that's what it means, then it's not a sigh of, oh, just give us a king that wants cultivated fields. It's saying, look, this hierarchy of oppression goes all the way up. And even the work that you do to keep your fields cultivated just ends up being profit for the king. It's a really incredible thing that he's doing here. And he's, he's not saying that, that the answer to the whole thing is just don't care about injustice, don't care about oppression, don't care about things when, when people are being wronged in various ways. He just wants you to understand that that's been the way of the world since the very beginning. When sinful human beings started organizing themselves in societies and governments, it was oppression that was shot through all of those systems. I think there are some important things to, to realize and learn here. I, I mean, first of all, I just want you to notice that the fact that governments can be and will be oppressive is not some new or revolutionary thought. That's not something that's new to the 20th century. It's not something, certainly, that's new to the 21st century. I mean, 3,000 years ago, the author of Ecclesiastes had noticed that governments were oppressive, and he's already bored with it. 
It's just, if you see a government being oppressive, what are you so amazed about? Why do you act like this is some kind of huge scandal that the world has never seen before? It's always been like this, he says. They're inherently oppressive. They don't, they don't solve humanity's problems. In more cases than not, they cause them. If we recognize that and sort of learn to sigh along with the preacher of Ecclesiastes, I think it'll have a tendency to save us from a couple of, of naive errors that we can often fall into. One of those naive errors is in harboring in our own hearts some sort of utopian hope utopian dream that if we just manage here in the United States to elect the right person, if we just manage here in the United States in whatever way you're thinking to just confirm the right five people to sit on the Supreme Court, then all the problems of our society will be solved. That it's the other side that's causing all the problems and if they would just sit down and be quiet and give us the presidency and the Supreme Court, everything would be just fine. But of course, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying that's foolishness. It's foolishness. From the very beginning of time, governments have oppressed. There have been societies who thought they had the right king, who thought they had the right emperor, who thought they had the right Supreme Court, and it turned out that the DNA of oppression was present in those sinners too. It has always been that way, and it will always be that way. It's good, it's fine to to work for the good, to try to better society. It's good to vote. It's good to organize. It's good to speak out. There are other places in the scripture where I've preached about that at some length. Like, you take your responsibility. Romans 13, right? Use your responsibility as a citizen of the United States, one who holds a little bit of authority, one, you know, what is it, 350 millionth of the authority in this this country. Use it on November the 6th or whatever to vote. And vote as a Christian, right? I've preached about that. But friends, it is naive and foolish To think that history, if we can just elect the right guy or the right girl, if we can just get the right five people on the court or the right 535 in Congress, if we can just do it, it's naive to think that history is headed towards some shiny end where a good government either takes care of us all or leaves us all alone, depending on your ideology. It's never been that way, and it will never be that way. Don't have that naive error in your heart. Here's another Here's another naive error that I think, I think the teacher here helps us to, to counter in our own hearts, and that is thinking that at any given moment in history, you are living in a uniquely awful time and with a uniquely awful government. If you spend too much time on Twitter or cable news or reading newspapers, that is precisely the impression you will get today. And the fact is, eight years ago, if Twitter had, I think it did exist, but it was just going to exist, if you spent time on Twitter or reading headlines or looking at cable news eight years ago, you'd have gotten the same impression depending on who you were listening to. Time after time after time. We're told that this is a uniquely awful time, this is a uniquely awful government, this is the most important election of our lives, and that this one is going to decide everything. But you see what the preacher is saying here. He's just, he's just listening to all those tweets and twits and cable news people cross-firing at one another. And he's just saying, all of you, take a breath. Just take a breath. Governments have always been bad. And their badness is deeply rooted because they are made up of bad, sinful people. I mean, again, it's, it's fine to 
work against all that badness as you have the ability to, as you have the authority to, as you're, as you're able to. You might even be able to make some progress here or there on this issue or that issue. But, but friend, don't have the idea in your heart, the very naive idea, that by burning up your life in activism and demonstration, you're somehow finally going to bring history to an end and light upon, finally, a government that doesn't do all those things. They all do, and they always have. The preacher here, I think, helps us to temper our utopianism. And one thing he says that they all do and always have done is take your money. And they just do. He's talking about money in this whole thing. He's talking about oppression. He's talking about governments taking things from people. That's what governments do. They, 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 they take your money. And that's the first reason he gives, that money is not all it's cracked up to be. And our government, our advertisers, everyone in our society hammers into our brains over and over again, day after day after day. You need to get money. You need to get money. You need to get money. So we can take it. Friend, you may look at your bank account. You may look in your, in, your, in your wallet. You may pull out your pockets and see what's inside them. And you may think that somehow your money is yours. That somehow it is inviolably yours. But the reality is it can be taken. Every April 15th, the government takes some of your money and does so lawfully. But the reality of the matter is, and history bears it out, is that if the government decides to, It'll take your money not only lawfully, but unlawfully. Your money can be taken. And that's why it's not all it's cracked up to be. Not only so, but the second thing he says about money that, that makes it not all it's cracked up to be is that if you really think about it, you'll realize that money is, is just flat unsatisfying. And for all the television commercials tell us, for all the things we read in magazines tell us, money is just flat unsatisfying. That's the point of verses 10 through 12. Look at, look at those. He who loves money, he says there, will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This, this also is vanity. And then look at 11. When goods increase, so do they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but just to watch them with his eyes as they get devoured? You see what he's saying there? You, you never, when it comes to money, when it comes to possession, your heart never reaches a point of having enough. You can buy anything you want, and your heart is always going to want more. You know this. You know this when you go to the Apple store or the, the Verizon store and get a new phone, right? You are, you are all fired up about that new shiny phone for about a week and a half, and then after that, you're looking for the next one because Galaxy's come out with an S10 rather than an S9, and oh my goodness, I've got the junk. You know this about your car. I mean, those of you who have ever bought a new car know that the new car smell lasts for about a month, and then you start wanting a new car again so that you can have the smell back. <laughs> in 11, in 11, as, as money increases, he says, so do those who want to consume it. I mean, people who win the lottery find out that they had a lot of friends that they didn't know about it before. And then verse 12, you see there, all of, all of this stuff just increases worry until the care of it keeps you, from, keeps you from sleeping. And money doesn't create satisfaction. Money can solve some problems, but it's always going to create new problems. Money can sate some desires, but it's always going to create more desires. In the end of it, what you find is that the goalposts just keep moving in your heart. You can pray to the Lord in your young 20s, Lord, if I just had, had $5,000 in the bank, I would feel perfectly secure. And then by your late 20s, the Lord's given you $5,000, and your prayer has become, Lord, if I just had $20,000 in the bank, I'd feel fine about it all. Friend, you're not going to find satisfaction in money, and that's why it's not all it's cracked up to be. Third, 
Third, he says there in verses 13 and 14, money can just be lost. It can just be lost. I mean, in 13 and 14, it sounds like what's going on is that this king, this preacher had a friend who, who had a son. He was a father. And he lost everything. And he made some sort of bad business venture, it looks like, some sort of bad inheritance, and everything that he had was lost. Now, you and I in modern society try to prevent that kind of thing happening with insurance and trusts and laws and rules and all the rest, but, but the reality is, if you really think about it, all it takes is one bad decision, one bad catastrophic emergency to wipe out everything that you own. And it's not even that rare a thing to have happen. And you and I talk about financial security, but... You see what the teacher's saying here? If you are relying on financial security, if your sense of security is really in your finances, he's saying you are a fool. He makes a kind of related point, sort of on the the other side of the mountain, so to speak, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. If you read that paragraph, what what you learn from him is that the enjoyment of money can be lost. And you may be a person who has everything, who who could not want anything else in the world, who has all the gold and silver and food and possessions that any person could ever want, and yet, for whatever reason, you lose the ability to enjoy it. The teacher even says, look, if that's you, if you've got everything in the world but accept the ability to enjoy those things, it makes you worse off than a stillborn child. Look at that phrase in verse 2 of chapter 6. He says, "A a man to whom God gives wealth possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing at all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. I think sometimes we attribute to money a power it does not have, and that is the power of enjoyment. If I just had that, my life would be filled up with enjoyment. If I had that possession, my life would be filled up with joy. But you realize that those possessions out there and that money and whatever it is that your heart pines after does not have the power of enjoyment. It's God who gives you the power and the ability to enjoy those things. In fact, money and the love of it tends to corrode the ability to enjoy, which is why the Bible warns so much against it. Friend, if you look around and you're enjoying the things that God has given you, good. But don't think for a minute that it's those possessions that have given you enjoyment. It's God. Here's the fourth thing he says, not just that money can be lost, but that money will be lost. It's not a question. It's not, a, it's not an if. It's a matter of when. So look, look back to chapter 5, other side of the mountain again. Chapter 5, verse 15 to 17. As he's talking about this man who lost everything, he said, He said, besides, verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? You see what he's saying there? You did not come into this world with your hands clutched full of dollar bills. And you will not go out of this world with your hands clutched full of dollar bills and possessions. His point is that no matter how much you have, no matter what level of security you've attained financially, one day you are going to lose every single cent of it. I mean, they may dress you up nice and pretty in your casket. You may be wearing a Giorgio Armani suit instead of a J.C. Penney suit. 
You may have necklaces around your neck and rings on your fingers and earrings on your ears and diamond tie tacks on your tie. But friends, I've stood at the head of enough caskets to know that the very last thing they do before they shut the door on your dead body is that they take those diamond rings off your cold fingers and put them in a little satin bag to hand to your survivors. You can't take any of it with you. In the end, every single one of us is playing a game with our money where the odds of winning are exactly zero. Death owns the house. And in the long run, the house always wins. It may be tomorrow. It may be today. It may be years from now. But the fact of the matter is that one way or another, you will lose it all. So so if that's true, if all of that is true, that money doesn't give satisfaction and it can be lost and it will be lost and even the enjoyment of it can be lost, what's the solution? Well, like like a diamond in a setting, the top of the mountain comes in verses 18 to 20 of chapter five. Look what he says there. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You see what he's saying there? He's talking about the vanity, the emptiness of striving after more constantly, of making your life the pursuit of money and possessions when in the end you're going to lose it all. And he says, instead of that, just look around and enjoy what God has given you. Whatever you have, whether it's millions or thousands or tens or cents, enjoy what God has given you. Recognize that it's a gift from God and don't burn away your days wishing that you had more. Or in the case, if you have a lot, some people are wishing they had less. He says, look around and eat, drink, work, and recognize that everything that's in your life, whatever circumstances you're in, they're a gift from God. I mean, can you know always why God gave you this set of circumstances instead of that set of circumstances? No, but but trust God that he knows what he's doing. Look, it's a a universal human problem. One of the things that causes so much strife and trouble in in, in human history and in the human heart, it's a universal human problem that our desires and our possessions are seldom in line with one another, right? We We either have more possessions than we actually want, and that causes stress, or we have fewer possessions than we want, and that causes a certain amount of stress. Well, what's the solution to that? The solution, of course, is to get desires and possessions at the same level. And our society is all about hammering into our minds that the way you do that is that if your desires are here, what you need to do is spend your life burning up your years, raising the level of your possessions to the level of your desires. That's what the American dream is built on. Raise your possessions to the level of your desires. But the trouble, of course, is that the goalposts keep moving. And once our possessions are raised up to this level of desire, guess what our desires do? They go this level higher. But there's another solution, and that is actually to bring your desires down to the level of your possessions. And the result, if you look at verse 20, is that you'll spend your life occupied with the joy that God gives you and the gifts that he's put into your life. So how do you you start to do that? How do you start to bring your desires down to the level of your possessions, if 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 that's the situation that you're in? 
In other words, another way to answer, ask that question is, how do you break the idolatry, the love of money that, that leads us and drives us to burn our years up trying to get it? Well, the very best way to break the idolatry of money, to put your finger in its eye and say, you're not going to rule over me, the very best way to break the idolatry of money is to give it away. And you know that, right? If the idolatry of money is threatening you, the very best way to break it and stick your finger in money's eye is to give it away. Money's great lie that it whispers into your ear all the time and that is backed up by all the megaphones of society is you need me. You can't live without me. And the more of me you have, the better your life is going to be. That is money's great lie. And the best way to show that lie up is to grab money off your back, get it to stop whispering in your ear that you need it, look it in the eye and say, no, I don't. Now watch this. I'm giving you to somebody else. That's the best way to do it. The best way to break money's, money's power over you, the best way to break that idolatry is to say, no, I don't need you. Counter its lie, both in your words and in your actions. So, so give it away. And the money that God is, has given you, give it away. Give it, give it to others. And I don't even mean just a token sort of thing, like here's, you know, here's 10 bucks. Give it to others. Look for needs where you can actually make a difference and change a situation and, and give it away to them so that it actually changes things for them. You know, in other places you could, that you could give money, you could give it to this church. Now, half of you are sitting there thinking, oh, there goes the preacher asking for money. Well, look, I, I don't have to feel bad asking you to give away your money to this church because I don't get that money. I mean, believe it or not, I, I and Ben and Brandon and Mike do not work on commission based on how much you give in a given month. If we did, I promise you sermons around here would be very different. None of us works on commission, and so I don't have to feel bad about, about asking you to give money to the church. But, but think about it. I mean, what better way can you think of what better way can you think of to pull the screaming demon of money off your back than to look him in the eye, tell him you don't need him, and then conscript him into the service of his enemy, the king of kings? Let, let me just, let me, let me give you a challenge that's very practical here. Because I think every single one of us probably has this, this demon sort of whispering in our ear, and we need, to, we need to deal with it. So let me give you a very practical challenge. Let me challenge you over the next year, the next, next 12 months. January's almost over, but it's not quite, so you could even do it, you can even do it this month. Let me challenge you that whatever you give regularly in, in offerings, in tithes, and gifts to the church, that if you are a member of Third Avenue, you increase that by $10 per month. 10 bucks a month. That's two lattes, slightly less. From Starbucks. It's four downgrades from a vanilla blonde latte down to a regular coffee a month. Four downgrades from lattes to regular coffee a month and give $10 a month more to the church. Maybe you're the kind of person that could downgrade, you know, 12 lattes. I don't know. But think about, think about what that does. It, does. it does all kinds of good. I mean, on the one hand, you just, you, if, if everybody in the church did that, $10 a month extra. It's, it's 581 members times $10 a month times 12 months is $69,720 that's made available for kingdom use. That's pretty incredible. But also, I think about what that does in our hearts. It is a church-wide declaration of war against the love of money. We 
don't need this. And so we're putting it in service to the King of Kings. That's the first thing the preacher says to us. Live, live not in the love of money, but in the joy of God. Here's the second thing he says. Live in the shadow of the grave, not the glare of the party. Live in the shadow of the grave, not the glare of the party. In chapter 7, the preacher starts a brand new point. It's not really brand new, though, because it's a point that he's made since the very beginning of the book, mostly in chapters 1 and 2, and that is the point that if you want to live well in this world that God has created, you should live this life in the shadow of the grave. In other words, with an awareness of the fact that one day you're going to die. So look what he Look what he says in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 7. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And then he goes on and talks about it, talks about it some more. I think sometimes we read Ecclesiastes 7, 1 and 2 right there, and we tend to over-spiritualize it. And what we, what we do with it is that we say that the day of death is better than the day of birth, why? Well, it's because on the day of death, you get, to go, you get to go be with Jesus, right? You get to go to heaven, you get to see the pearly gates and the, the streets of gold and all the rest of it. That, that's true, right? And the day of death is not a fearsome thing for Christians because we do, in fact, go to be in the presence of Jesus. But the author of Ecclesiastes isn't making exactly that point. He's making a simpler point than that. What he's saying is that the day of death is a better teacher than the day of birth. And you can see that in verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning, in other words, to a funeral, better to go to a house of of mourning, to a funeral home, than to go to the house of feasting. Why? Because the funeral home is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay that to heart. In other words, you'll take it in and roll it around and understand what you can understand from going to the funeral home. It's true, isn't it? Death is a better teacher than than birth. I mean, think about the difference between a a one-year-old's birthday and a funeral of an an older person, Right? You go to a one-year-old's birthday, and you can say a few things about the kid. You know, he's cute, or he's this or that, or he's got a great personality, or look how he's tearing that, that cake up. But there's not a whole lot you can learn from that, right? I mean, it's like, oh, man, I want to have the same zest for life that the one-year-old does when he gets a smash cake. Well, there, no, there's not that much to learn. But you go to the funeral of, of an 80, 85-year-old saint who's lived a life of faithfulness to God, and there is so much to learn. There's just layer after layer of, of lessons from that person's life that you can lay to your own heart and learn from. So why is it a better teacher? Why is death a better teacher than, than birth? Why is the day of death a better teacher than the day of birth? Why is thinking about death a better teacher than thinking about the party and the laughter and the lights and the noise? Why, why is it better? Well, two things, I think. Two reasons it's a better teacher. Number one, to live in the shadow of death teaches us to value what's really important. If you live in the shadow of death, if you, if you, if you keep in mind the fact that one day you are going to wind up in the grave, it'll teach you to value what's really important. It gives, it gives perspective. I mean, there's the, the guy who famously said at one point that the prospect of being hanged within a fortnight has a marvelous tendency to concentrate the mind. Well, it does. It does. And the prospect of dying in a fortnight or dying in... A fortnight of years has a marvelous tendency to concentrate the mind. When, when you look at your own grave, if you could, like Ebenezer Scrooge, find yourself in the, in the graveyard and look down and see your name on the tombstone with fresh dirt piled up, what is it you would think about? 
What is it that you would look at and say, this is what matters? The gold, the gold watch that you got for, for 40 years of service at the business? The bank account that you managed to grow through all the years of your life? The degree that you attained? I doubt it. When you look at your name on the tombstone, when you look at your own body in the grave, it tends to marvelously concentrate your mind and help you think about and value what is worth thinking about and valuing. That's the first thing. Here's the second reason death is such a good teacher. To, to live in the shadow of death teaches you to enjoy and be thankful for the things of right now. It helps you to enjoy and be thankful for the things of right now. So much of our lives is spent looking forward to the next thing, looking forward to the next thing. When you're single, you're looking forward to being married. When you're married, you're looking forward to having children. When your children are infants, you're looking forward to when they're toddlers. When they're toddlers, you want them to just be able to uh, go to the bathroom by themselves. When they finally can do that, you want them out of their car seat. When they get out of the car seat, you want them to be driving so you can send them to the store. When they, and it's just on and on and on and on, always looking outside of the now to something that's coming up later. Oh, but friends, part of what it means to live well and this gift of a life, these gifts of years that God has given you, is learning to enjoy what's happening right now. I and mean, some of you, for, for most of the morning, have been thinking about what has to happen after this gathering of the church is over. What's got to happen this afternoon? What's got to happen on Monday? But you realize, friend, that there is not an infinite number of times that you're going to gather here with this body of believers. It is a finite number, and this is one of them. You realize, don't you, friends, that there... There's not, there's not an infinite number of your kids' basketball games that you're going to get to go to. There's not an infinite number of cups of coffee you're going to drink. There's not an infinite number of, of chilly, sunny days in January that you're going to walk into and have your breath taken away a little bit. Don't look past those things. Live in them and enjoy them. Some of you knew very well, a dear friend of this church, Carrie Vincent, who, who died, died very young and, and very recently of cancer. She, back in October, wrote a, a Facebook post in which this idea of, of enjoying the now came through just, just loud and clear. Let me just read you a bit of what she wrote here. She says, October's on my mind today. This weekend's been so lovely. My sister, mom, brother-in-law, nephew, and niece have been in town. The weather's been perfect God has given me energy. It's a gift. It was a gift to her. God has given me energy to participate in fun with them each day, and I am so thankful. Family is so important to me. These kids and these people have my heart. So this weekend, we made pottery. We made fires. We talked about heaven. We hated cancer. We supported one another. We talked about politics. We ate together. We rode on a boat. We laughed. We played with my little ponies. Today, we say goodbye, she says. Goodbyes are hard, and goodbyes are really hard when your life expectancy is short, and mine is quite short. So is yours, friend. So is yours. She says, I think about the life I thought I was going to have, and this isn't it. I thought I would have been at my niece's side when she gets married. I won't. I thought Brant and John would call me to pick, pick them up for a long weekend from college and feed them tons of yummy food. I, I won't do that. I thought Ben would introduce me to his wife on a fall evening around a fire. He won't. I thought I would attend Jack's graduation and see the man he's becoming. I won't. I have to trust those things will happen by someone else who loves them. Talk about heartbreaking. It is, it is so hard as their mother. 
And yet, the peace and joy we have as a family is truly remarkable. That I have each day and moment. The joy among the sadness, it is there. The hope we have because of our trust in Christ is real. And so as we wipe a tear and get on with living today, please pray for the hearts of these kids. May they learn to wipe tears and find joy in October, in all the stages of life, as they live and as they die, because this is life. And the Octobers keep coming just to the right of summer. And I love Octobers. Friends, you've got to live in the shadow of the grave before you'll say something like, I love October. But, But did you catch what else she said there? Did you catch what she said there? She said, the hope that we have because of our trust in Christ is real. The author of Ecclesiastes doesn't spend a whole ton of time on the life that comes after death. He knows it's there. He says so in chapter 12. He knows it's there, but he's concerned with figuring out how to live this life well. But but he knew and we know that this life isn't all there is. And the beautiful thing about that is that if the awareness of the grave transforms the way we think about this life, then when we have Christ and when we have the promise of eternity, that understanding in this life will also transform the way we look at the grave. It's not something that's fearsome. It's an invitation into the presence of Christ, the one who lived and died and rose again, so that if we're united to him by faith, we might live forever also. Friend, live in the shadow of the grave, and you'll find that shadow being dissolved by the light of eternity. Here's the third thing. Here's the third thing, third point. The preacher here says, live in reliance on God, not in reliance on wisdom. Live in reliance on God, not in reliance on wisdom. In, in chapter 7, verse 7, the focus changes. It's a little bit hard to see it because of the way your, your Bible is probably organized and structured there, but the focus changes. The author wants us to think again with him about, about wisdom. He's been talking about it from the very beginning of the book, and now he wants to put our eyes and focus back on wisdom itself. So he starts in 7 through 12, All those sort of poetic verses there. And he's pointing out there that wisdom has its uses. It's got its value. Wisdom does a lot of good things. There are things that it can teach us. So if you look in particular at 7, 8, 9, and 10, you'll find little nuggets of wisdom that he's throwing out. And he's saying, essentially, these are good things. This is what what it teaches us. And then he comes down to 11 and 12 and says, wisdom is good. It has an inheritance. It has an advantage to those who see the sun. Protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge, he says is that wisdom preserves your life. If you've got wisdom, that's a good thing, he says. But then it changes again in verse 13. Look at at 13. But consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Do you see his point there? His point is that Even though wisdom has its value, and even though wisdom has things that we can learn from it, there are certain realities in this world that you cannot simply wrestle into line with wisdom or power or anything else. There are just certain things that are crooked, and they're not going to be made straight. Now, that's the point that he's going to wrestle with all the way through the rest of the end of the chapter. And at various points, he's going to return to the idea that wisdom is good. It is. Here's something that you can learn about this. Here's something that wisdom can teach you about that. He returns to that over and over again. But throughout it, he's also recognizing that even wisdom has its limits. And it shouldn't become an idol to us any more than money or pleasure ought to become an idol to us. 
So that's what he means if you look at verses 23, 24. He says, all all this I've tested by wisdom. I, I use wisdom. I said, I will be wise. And he went after it. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? In other words, there are just certain things in this life that even if you're pursuing wisdom, aren't going to make sense. It's the same thing he means in 16 to 18 too. Somewhat confusing verses where he says in verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Also, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your your time? Is he saying there that there's just some, you know, perfect mean in between righteousness and foolishness? Like you want a little bit of foolishness in your life, but not too much and not, no, that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. He says, he means there that there's a way that you can be so overly scrupulous about getting things just right that you wind up trying to wrestle the vagaries of life into your own lines and you make wisdom an idol. It's not that the pursuit of wisdom is wrong. It's just that it's really difficult for us as human beings to pursue wisdom without it becoming an idol, without us thinking that by doing wisdom, by learning wisdom, we'll just be able to wrestle the world down and make it work for us. I mean, one of the places that I see this happening all the time, and it's not a generational thing, it happened in mine, my parents, yours, many of you, it happens to all of us, is in the realm of parenting. Hey, have you ever noticed how many times we try to wise ourselves into the outcome being that our children end up okay? Have you ever, you ever noticed that? I mean, just, just listen to your own conversations. If you, if, you just, if you just look at this book or if you look at that book, if you, just, if you just baby wise or don't baby wise, if you just shepherd the child's heart or do this or do that or whatever it is on the blogs that, these days, if you just do this approach or take this method or... Feed the kid this formula instead of that formula or no formula or whatever. Everything will turn out right. If you just do it, it'll work. I remember a friend of mine being asked some years ago to teach a Sunday school on parenting and he, he, at a, a church I was at, and he laughed about it. He said, he said, man, 15 years ago, I would have been more than happy to teach a Sunday school on parenting because I thought I had it all figured out. When my kids were young, when I had toddlers, I had a 10-step program for everything. If you just do this and do this and do this, your kids will be Christians. And then after that, you can, you can make them successful and all the rest. And he said, look, but all my kids are out of the house now, and they're all grown up. And you're asking me to teach a parenting class. And he said, look, the only thing I've got to say to you is just love God and love them and do your best because you have no idea how it's going to pan out. I mean, friends, that, that may sound like a punt, but there is some deep, Deep wisdom in that. Love God. Love them. Pray for them. Do your best. Because you have no idea how it's going to pan out. That's true in so much of life, isn't it? I mean, look at, look at verse 18 of chapter 7. Sorry, verse 14. Look at verse 14. The teacher says there is a kind of conclusion. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And and look at 18. It's good that you should take hold of all of this and from that withhold not your hand. This, this, This wisdom of loving God and trusting him through all the vagaries of life. For the one who fears God will, will come out from both of them. In other words, he'll, 
He'll come out from thinking that he can wrestle the world down with wisdom, and he'll come out from thinking that wisdom is not of any value at all. Fear God. Trust God. Rely on God. Not even wisdom. There are going to come days in your life that are full of prosperity. There are going to come days that are full of adversity. Don't try to wrestle it all down. Don't think that you can make straight what is crooked. Trust God through both of them. He knows what he's doing. Do you see the picture that the teacher's painting here? Do you see what he's, you see what he's doing here? He's saying, if you want to live well in this life, you need to live it in knowledge of the providence of God, in knowledge of the judgment of God. You need to live it loving others and not just yourself. You need to listen to God's voice because it matters more than yours. You need to live in the joy of God, not in the joy of things. You need to live in the shadow of the grave so that you'll recognize this life for what it really is. And then you need to live not trying to wrestle the world down, but as it comes and as it goes, live in reliance on God. Now, what a beautiful picture that is of life lived in faith in God. And all of it, of course, looking forward to the day when we'll stand before Jesus and praise him forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.